0: And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom and Mine. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There's more to the story than just postpartum depression, and this podcast aims to share it all from personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome back to mom in mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat I'm grateful to my colleague, Robin Gieson for coming on the podcast today to share with us her story. Not only is she a perinatal mental health certified therapist, she also went through her own postpartum anxiety and more than that, she had an increased amount of postpartum anxiety after she found out that her son had a rare birth defect. She's going to go into explaining to us what craniosynostosis is and how that impacted her anxiety. This was an unexpected medical diagnosis for her firstborn. However, during the pregnancy with her second, this same diagnosis was made in utero. So she talks with us about how she coped through all of that and how she is really invested in helping other parents who are going through similar circumstances. Robin is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Long Beach, California, and as I said before, she's certified in perinatal mental health, but she's also a bringing baby home educator and leads a postpartum anxiety group at her practice. And one of the other reasons that this is such an important conversation is that it's rarely discussed, or at least I rarely hear about it discussed openly or publicly. How the diagnosis of a birth defect or a child who's born with special needs impact the mental health of the mother and parents who are then caring for that child. What we do know is a higher stress and that higher stress is more likely to impact the mental health of caregivers. So Robin bringing attention to this for us and highlighting what her experience was like is really important in furthering this conversation. So let's meet Robin. Hi, Robin. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. I'm happy to get to talk to you and uh, know you within the perinatal mental health world, and we've been able to share some time together at trainings and whatnot. So it's it's nice to be able to have a chat. Thank you so much. Yeah. So would love for you to start wherever you'd like to start with your story.
1: Okay, great. I think I'm going to start at the beginning. It seems like the most logical place. Yeah. I... I'm a mental health professional and I you know, had my first child about 11 years ago. I did not specialize in perinatal mental health at the time. And I was really excited to be having a baby. I did have some anxiety. I have an autoimmune disorder. It's very well under control, but I had some worry you know, about how that was going to impact my labor and delivery. But beyond that, you know, I thought I was very naive about what All of the different things that were going to come to help, you know, come my way. I kind of actually had my—I was the mom that had my head in the sand. I didn't have my nursery ready. I didn't go to the, you know, the classes until the very last minute. And then my labor started. So my labor began in a very unusual way. My water broke before my labor. I didn't know that this was unusual at the time. I just was like, oh, you know, here it's time to go and. Wow, this doesn't hurt at all. This is like, this is amazing. This is not anything like what I expected. And then we got to the hospital, and they, you know, let me know that my labor hadn't begun, but that it should begin soon, and everything's going to be, you know, great. I think it was about twelve hours through my water breaking that they decided to put me on some Pitocin. I didn't know at the time that really the doctors want you to deliver within twenty four hours as soon as your water has broken. So I had a pretty prolonged, difficult labor that Mm -hmm. Pitocin put me into a lot of pain. My baby was kind of going in and out of position in and out of position. And so I was moving around a lot Mm -hmm. to get him into position and towards the end, I was able to push and they said, Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, your baby is transverse and his heart rate is starting to fluctuate. And so we're going to have to do a C-section and they coded it. Right. So it was very Mm -hmm. scary how they rushed you down the hall and you know, you, you get into a very freezing cold room and, you know, all of a sudden all these people descend upon you. Right. I was really scared for my baby. I wasn't, I didn't really have a thought for myself, but I was terrified for my child. So the C-section was quick and I got to see him very briefly. And then we went our separate ways. They were still, there was nothing wrong with him. I do think that they took him up to the Mickey, I don't even know. Right. Cause I was taken away. Do you think they took him up to the NICU to observe for a few hours just because of how he came? And then I was taken back to a room to rest, I guess, essentially, I don't, all I remember is going to sleep. And when I woke up knowing that something was terribly wrong with me, I had really bad, what I now know was postpartum anxiety. But even though I'm a mental health professional, I had never heard of postpartum anxiety before. I had heard a lot about postpartum depression. I was even prepared for that to just sort of, I was like, oh yeah, that'll be me. Right. I'll have the postpartum depression, but I had never heard of this. I've had anxiety before I had worry while I was pregnant, but this was something that was totally different. It was very, very physical. Uh My blood pressure was extremely elevated and I was I mean, even talking about it with you now, I feel like I want to like wring my hands, (laughs) right? Like it was really, really physical. Yeah. And I remember going up into recovery, being in a lot of pain, being under like a lot of medication and not seeing my baby for quite some time. And I think the longer that we were separated for whatever the reason was, the scary, it started becoming like scary to me, the idea of seeing him and just like, you know, a good 24 hours of that before I finally met my son and the nurse finally saying like, I think your baby would like to be held by you. And that being kind of this like moment for me, like, oh my gosh. remember thinking, what if he doesn't like me, which seems like such a silly thing to think. But I think because we had been separated for so long that this moment was just, yeah. And um, getting to hold him, which was wonderful. I mean, being with him, there was something very healing in the moment of finally being able to see him. And I learned a lot about co-regulation throughout my postpartum anxiety because I was fine whenever I was able to hold him or he was right beside me. But any separation was really distressing to me it would you know my blood pressure would spike up i could feel my heart rate accelerate my palms start to sweat not really like any thoughts associated with this in the beginning just pure physical manifestation of anxiety i could hear other babies you know crying like way down the hall and is that my baby where's my baby Um, yeah i was in mass they were actually going to put me on magnesium or my blood pressure, and I probably should have left them. But I had the experience I think a lot of moms had where I had a lot of really great postpartum nurses in the hospital. And then I had some ones that were just like, it was wretched, right. And mm-hmm. when she spoke to me about going on the nine museums, it felt like a threat. You know, it felt like, oh. yeah, like it felt like I, I think what her words were, were if you don't calm down, which is sort of like, oh, wow. that works, you know, right. If you don't calm down right now, we're going to have to separate you from your baby and take you to a separate ward of the hospital and put you on that knees. This was in the middle of the night. My husband was at home. Spouses weren't allowed to stay in the hospital. And I remember calling, you know, and waking up my stepmother and being like, somebody has to come. They're going to separate me from the baby. Somebody has to be here with the baby. And maybe that's when it began. I can't put my finger on when it began. That's sort of this idea that some harm was going to befall my child. Right, yeah. Yeah.
0: This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted?, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild. comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to mysteries about true histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods.
1: So they sent me home two, three days, whatever the period of time is. And I remember, I think a lot of moms feel this way, you know, as they will you out, like, oh, wow, you're letting me take this baby home. Like, I have right. no idea what to do with this baby. Like, am I responsible enough to take this baby home? Taking him home and having much the same experience at home that I had in the hospital. Like, as long as he was right there, I was okay. But if my my husband, like a lot of moms, I wasn't sleeping My husband wanted to put the baby in his own room so that I wasn't woken by every little and like, we kind of joke about it now, but he would walk him down the hall and put him in his crib and I would lay there for a minute and then I would get up and go down, pick him back and put him back in the bassinet, right? Like there was just no way. And it regulated me like a little bit. Then I started having fears. Like I was afraid that there was going to be house fire, terrified. And so he needed to be close to me. I felt like really confident <laughs> that right. if he was right near me, I would be able to get him out of the house. I was afraid of an earthquake. I was afraid of being in a car with him, you know, that something, something was going to happen. Finally, I had, like, I had enough wherewithal at the time I was working for a psychiatrist to be like, you know, this isn't normal. And I bet there's something that somebody can do about this. So I called and um very kind man that I worked for. And he put me on Zoloft and almost immediately, it was really Fast for me. I was really lucky at how quickly the medication kicked in. And what it did for me was it took the edge off. Like I still had a lot of uh, intrusive thoughts. And I know, and I I'm sure I knew somewhere in my mind then that I should see a therapist, but I didn't know maternal mental health existed. I didn't know where I would find the time for something like that. So for the time being, the meds, the meds were okay. And I started, I have a lot of friends who are therapists, right? So sort of started talking through some of the anxiety with them. And I was starting to get like a little bit better about that, you know, like how realistic were my fears, etc. And sort of like focusing on what I could control and letting go of things that I couldn't control. And then I started to notice that my son's head had, had like a little pinch at the temples that hadn't been there before. And it really messed with my mind because I was like, my mind like legitimately going crazy that yeah. this doesn't look like how it should look. I'm going to all of my pediatric appointments. Nobody's saying something about this. I would ask my husband and my husband was very kind and gentle, but I could tell like, he didn't see this yet. And yeah, kind of like, kind of felt like this was part of my anxiety. And so what do you do with that? Like, what do you do when you're pretty sure something's wrong, but you know, something's wrong with you that might be leading you to think something's wrong that isn't Mm -hmm. wrong. And so it was this kind of mess. So I took him back to the doctor and the doctor was like, oh no, he's fine. But he has a strabismus, which is when your eyes, one eye would kind of cross inward. So you should go see this eye doctor. So I went and saw, you know, the pediatric eye doctor and the pediatric eye doctor said, yeah, he has a strabismus Mm -hmm. and he has a strabismus because he has craniosynostosis. What's craniosynostosis? Well, you should go back to your pediatrician and talk about craniosynostosis. Yeah, so I went back to the pediatrician. Of course, after googling it, you know, let me look, and I did not like at all what I found. So, what what craniosynostosis is? Is our children are all of our babies are born with four separate plates of bone in the skull, and they have sutures, which are fibrous joints in between them that don't get that don't kind of fuse or harden up until our children are two years old. And this is so that they can make it through the birth canal, right? So that the the skull can bend. And craniosynostosis is a condition where one or more of those sutures fuse prematurely or before your child is two years old. And what happens with craniosynostosis is that the brain can no longer grow when the suture is fused in that direction. So the brain can still grow, but in my children's case, it was the sagittal suture that's fused which is the most warm and calm of craniosynostosis and so their brains could not grow this way could not grow wide so their head started to grow outward i don't want to be insensitive to any of a cranial mom who might be listening but like Mm -hmm. as the doctor said like oh he's kind of looks like a baby beluga you know like where the it looks puffy here okay got it yeah and it for some children, my son was not one of them. It starts to narrow in the back. Okay. So we, we went back to the pediatrician by now it's more prominent. So his head's no longer able to grow this way. You know, the What's fever... this, like, time period by now, like how old is he when you're starting? I would say this was three months. So the first, I would say I started noticing it. It was after the six week appointment, but before mm-hmm. the three month appointment. Okay. Got so most kids with craniosynostosis, not most, but I would say a large majority of kids with craniosynostosis, from my understanding, the sutures fuse in utero and the doctor catches it right away when the baby is born. Um, they check for soft spots for fontanella. And so if there's no fontanella, then your suture is fused, or if there's a ridge, or if there's something asymmetrical about the shape of the skull. Okay. But for my first child, there wasn't any of that when he was born. And so now there was so whether that was that his skull fused kind of like towards the end of his in utero experience mm-hmm. because probably the reason that i was unable to deliver him vaginally was because his head he was probably moving away from this pressure right mm-hmm. of not being able to like mold his head through the birth canal because he couldn't bend it or do you know wait, wait, wait. do whatever that that naturally does so we, you know, we got sent for tests to confirm this diagnosis. Nowadays, I mean, 11 years is a long time medically. So, you know, nowadays it's really like, uh, this is more of a clinical diagnosis. Like they look and they feel, and they're like, mm-hmm. this is the deal. But with my child, we had to go and do, um, like imaging. Oh, okay. Right. So, and this was like my first panic, yeah. uh, not my first panic about the cranio. It was panicked. Like the moment they said, this it was just It was horrible, but it was sort of like the beginning of the medical procedures. Like, oh, he needs to be imaged. Like he needs to fast before imaging. Like he's an infant. How am I supposed to handle that? Like, how am I supposed to, I can't explain to him. I'm sorry, you can't eat. He's just going to be frustrated and wailing and upset. And I'm exposing him to radiation. And it was very difficult first step. So we got the imaging back. And then we we had to go see a neurosurgeon. They were like, the treatment for this is, is neurosurgery, which was unimaginable to me. I never imagined that something right. like this would happen to my child. And I was devastated. I was okay. devastated to have to go through this with him. So started the process of that, of seeing the neurosurgeon who said, yes, he has this and he needs, it's called a cranial vault reconstructive surgery, where they essentially remove first portion of his skull and reshape it and put it back on and they open up the suture.
0: Okay. Sorry.
1: So remove what exactly? And reshape how? They remove. Well, so, okay. So my son has a scar from Mm -hmm. here Mm -hmm. all the way across to here. So they go in Okay, and this is not, my son had a modified version. I I was not down for the full Uh, CVR. That was a personal choice. There's nothing wrong with having a full CVR. In fact, it's like what's recommended. it's the most recommended surgery but they they go from here to here and then they remove the the skull the front of the skull
0: uh, from side to side Mm -hmm. across the skull he has a zigzag kind of scar
1: from ear all the way across the ear
0: okay and then they remove the frontal part
1: yes they don't my understanding is they don't do the back because that would be quite dangerous right like that's where so they remove the front and they remodel it so bone skull bone. I don't know about other bone. My understanding is skull bone. It's really like pliable. I mean, it's hard, oh, okay. but when they're young like that, they can modify it, right? Like, so they can let's, take a hammer to it, you know, like, or whatever medical right. thing they're using and, right. and shape it and put it back on so that your child's brain has room to grow into this. And wow. so that it's less noticeable. So there there's like a mean, right. That they're trying to get back into the middle of and I think it's important, like, this is a big thing for me going through this. And I know for other moms having spoken to them, that this is not a cosmetic procedure. Like, it's not like we're taking our baby in because we right. don't like
2: no. the way
1: their head looks. This is reconstructive. So meaning that when something is cosmetic, it's within the limits of normal, so to speak. I hate for right. normal, right. Right. right? But it's like, of course. oh, I don't like the way my uh, nose looks. I want it to be more X, Y, or Z which is nothing wrong with that. But obviously we wouldn't do this with an infant.
0: right? Yes.
1: And um, with reconstructive, we're correcting the birth defect. So we're saying mm-hmm. like, okay, the baby's brain needs room to grow. Mm-hmm. And like, let's look down the line at social emotional development. Right. And you don't want to send your adolescent to school. And they have a doctor who said, hey, his forehead looks like a baby beluga's, right? Mm-hmm. Like we want to give our children all the best options right. in life. But that was a big struggle for me was that. um, This is like
0: you've never heard of this. Right. Now they're telling you that you need this invasive procedure, an intense procedure. And like, so, and he's three months
1: old. And he's three months old. And by the way, I've missed the window for a less invasive procedure. Right. Like, had I caught this at six weeks, right, when my anxiety was telling me, like, this can't be real, Mm -hmm. my mind is messing Mm -hmm. with me, we could have had. A modified version of this, where they go in endoscopically, remove the suture, and then put them immediately into the helmet. Because mm-hmm. at you know six weeks to three months, the brain is still soft enough that something like a helmet could help remodel and reshape right. the skull. But like six, we were past that window, which again was devastating to me. And I, I mean, I can't. So much guilt is involved in all of this, right? Oh, like, I, I bet, right? Like when something. But like
0: is- how? How do you? it's incredibly difficult to like you were saying before how do you know if it's anxiety or if it's yeah a thing and especially if nobody else can see the thing that you can see that you're
1: seeing it is hard and i tell more
0: anxious obviously
1: yeah i tell my moms to trust their guts right like when somebody comes into me like trust your gut keep going back like ask as many questions as you need to ask nobody is keeping a list at the doctor's office of how many times you've called until you feel satisfied that you have the answers right. that you need to have. And it took, it took a lot of personal work for me to sort of like let go of that guilt. Like yeah. you know what you know. And I didn't know any better at the time. For sure. And he's okay now, he's fine now. Yeah, but this is sort of where we were. And I encourage moms to focus on what you can control. And so this was something that I could control with the surgeon, right? Like, okay we missed the window. Like that stinks. There's no, re- I mean, if I could rewind time, it would, you know, like a lot of things would already be different. This is like, we're past our window on this and we're moving forward. Are there other options in terms of surgery? Like this is super invasive. Right. So I asked the surgeon, do you have anybody that you would recommend for a second opinion? So we got a sec, we, we got an appointment with another doctor and this was another really great lesson for me was that the, the person that we saw is like, sort of like the king of this procedure. Right. And so I felt really good about going in for the appointment and he really didn't spend any time with us. And he looked at my son and he was like, no, he, this child does not have craniosynostosis because the back of his skull isn't narrow. So the back of his skull was round, like mm-hmm. any babies would be. And I remember like these conflicting feelings inside of me because I was so happy. Like, Yay. My son just has a big forehead. Like this is great news, and at the same time, like the sinking feeling of like I know that that's I knew that that was not right. Right, right. I knew that this was not accurate. But he's the expert. Right, He's the second opinion. Mm-hmm. Um. And so at first I was like, Yay, hooray! To all my friends, no surgery. And mm-hmm. you could start to see by other people's lack of response to that that they knew something was wrong too. Mm, interesting. And right. how do you tell a mom? You know, I think something's wrong with your baby. So kind of nobody said anything. And then we decided we were going to go for a third opinion. And we went in for a third opinion. And I'm so glad we found the surgeon. He was the right fit for us. And not only was he, he said, yes, this child has craniosynostosis and and he needs surgery. And I'll tell you why, you know, he said like, he's at higher risk for intracranial pressure if you leave it and he'll be teased. And that kind of settled it for me. Like, obviously, even if he hadn't said the second portion, you know, there was no way I was going to put him at risk. Right, because I didn't want to go through this procedure with him. And then the really hard part began of waiting between deciding that we were going to do this surgery, which was a modified version. I was happy about that. So he does like a slightly different procedure and the children are in his operating room for two and a half to three hours less than they would be doing a full CDR, which was, that was big to me. That seemed Mm -hmm. safer to me. And you know, preparing for that surgery. I mean, the only preparation was like internal for me mm-hmm. and my husband. I had a it reactivated all my anxiety, which of had gotten a lot better because my anxiety had really been around something bad happening to my child. And here I was gonna be handing over my five month old son yeah. to a neurosurgeon.
0: Yeah. That is a big, big right. right. Big so now your you um your your reason for anxiety was confirmed, but now you have to worry about things that make you anxious that you know are going to happen,
1: not just things you're
0: worried about happening.
1: Yeah. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. so there's sort of like two competing things going. And and Mm -hmm. actually I would say that my intrusive thoughts got better during this time about things that had nothing to do with the surgery, right? Like, so I could be in the car with him and not be worried that somebody was going to, rear-end dust or whatever I had been worried about before, but I was really fixated on what if something bad happens in the operating room. So it's sort of like refocused my anxiety, I would say. And I'm sure all moms have these thoughts when oh, their babies yeah. are going in for surgery. You know, like I was worried that this, I remember saying to my husband, like, what if he's the like half a percent or a quarter a percent or whatever this tiny frequency percent is that dies of complications from the surgery? Like, It's like, I could see this moment in my mind's eye of wanting to rewind. And it was really hard because it felt more real than I think the risk was to me. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was very difficult to be like, you know, but I know it's the right thing to do for my child. And so I kind of like wavered. I was worried about anesthesia. I was worried about blood loss. You know, my husband went in and donated blood, which my son ended up needing to use. I was worried about. Oh, what if he needs the blood transfusion Then he has a transfusion reaction? And then we went, we handed him over. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life, watching him go back with the nurse who was taking him back for surgery. And we waited and then they come out and the wait was crazy, you know, thoughts in my mind of all the of terrible news that I was about to receive. And then it's over. And we were able to go back into recovery room and see him. and. The nurse assured us that he was not in any pain Mm -hmm. and almost like immediately he started wailing and I had a total stress response to this where Mm -hmm. I froze and I had to leave. And I feel so guilty about that to that, to this day. So my husband stayed with him and held him and it, it didn't take me long to kind of get it together, but it was very, it was very visceral feeling Mm -hmm. having to leave. Like I felt like maybe I was going to faint and we were able, you know, then, to go back up, go back up into the PICU, which was an experience in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And then we went home kind of two or three days later. And I had the same, the same feeling as I had going home from labor and delivery of like, Mm -hmm. you're letting me go home with my, my baby. Like his head was bandaged and kind of like in a turban. And I knew that, you know, even though he's all stitched together, that there were parts of his skull that had been removed. So Mm -hmm. it, it felt very like it, it almost felt like having a newborn again. Like this yeah, is very yeah. fragile. And I was afraid of dropping him or harming him in some sure. way. Yeah.
0: Having to relive all of this again, plus the additional traumatizing yeah. experience, plus the new anxiety. That's,
1: it's just a lot piled on. It was a lot. And, but then again, with the co-regulation, like again, and he got moved from like the PICU onto the floor, they call it. Right. So like first they're in the PICU and then once they're stabilized, they move them down to the floor. I had the same experience of when he was born of being terrified of holding him. This mm-hmm. time I was not that I was afraid he didn't want me to. I was afraid that I'd hurt him and i mm-hmm. would damage him. But then he started having drops in his, in his blood pressure. So he would wake up and startle and cry and I would pick him up and hold him. And I noticed that when I was holding him, he stayed within that window. and was able not to cry. Then when I put him down, cause there was no way I was going to risk falling asleep while I was holding him, you know, with right. his had in the condition that I was in. But as soon as I would put him down again, he would start to cry and his blood pressure would, you know, like the, that, the beep, 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 beep right? Yeah. Something was not right. they would pick him back up and hold him. And this went on all night. And it, that was important for me to be able to do that informs me with my clients today, how powerful co-regulation is, how early it starts. And that switched something on in me. Like I can do this. He needs me and I can do this. Yeah. You know, I think it's like, I can't, be the neurosurgeon and go in, remove the suture. And I don't have a magic wand to make this all go away from him. But then as soon as it was like, oh, I can do this, that was a really powerful moment for me. And what I realized once the surgery was over, I was still battling my anxiety, but, but what I realized, you know, those moments of co-regulation were also moments of pure joy, mm-hmm. just like, you know, being with him when he was in his bouncer, reading him a story, like when my mind was not on whatever it was that was causing me extreme anxiety, I was able to be present in a moment with him. And I was filled with like an incredible amount of love and joy. And I wanted more of that and less of the other. Yeah. And that was also something that I had some level of control over, you know, like anxiety is anxiety, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's there, it's survival mechanism, right. but we don't have to live with like clinically significant levels of that and just pretend that that's what motherhood is. Cause right. that's not true. Right. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: I really appreciate the level of detail you're sharing with us um, because we we don't hear uh, other people who go through this and don't really think get to hear what it's like, even though we're not hearing every single detail of your experience and, uh, you know, you can't for anybody, but for people specifically that, like that battle that we have with ourselves between, you know, our, your intuition and your anxiety and, um, when something is wrong and how, just even though the condition that you're describing isn't obviously something that everyone's going to be dealing with, I th- still think there are parts of that in different shades that people deal with when s- something doesn't quite feel right, but you're not sure what to do. And yeah. it, it's it's just important, though, for other moms who have experienced what you have to know that their experiences, I mean, obviously not, it is, is understandable. Yeah. Yeah, it was understandable. Uh, so you went through
1: you, all of this yeah, and then, and then, and then we went through it again, right. Which was it's funny for me to say this because I went through, it was my first craniosynostosis is one in 2,500. And I didn't think it would happen to us again, My And the neurosurgeon did that. He was like, oh no, this is like, you know, people don't have to have this happen to them twice. And my second son, we conceived through IVF and we had pregenetic testing on him. So I was like, oh, we are clear, right? Like whatever it was that caused this would have shown up and we were wrong, right? So we started to notice in the fetal monitoring that the, the baby blew, this, the head was back, right? Like you could tell. And then, this time you could tell in utero. You could tell in utero. Yeah. So it ended up that my first son only had a partial suture closure, which is why the back of his head wasn't pointy, right? So only half of the sagittal suture closed. He did have craniosynostosis. So we made the right choice in having it surgically corrected. My second son had the full suture closed. So he was delivered via cesarean section. There was no attempt at labeling delivery. I had a much different experience. The hospital had changed a lot of its policies. Mm -hmm. I was with him. He went, went back with me into recovery. I was never separated from him. I didn't have postpartum anxiety. I mean, I made different choices, right? Like I was on an antidepressant throughout my entire pregnancy so that Mm -hmm. I'd have a better shot. I did have, I I will say I went back and forth a little bit like a roller coaster, with the cranio because part of me was like, you know what? It's okay. Like we know we can do it. We did it before miles is fine. This baby will be fine. But then it was sort of like, it did sort of, it's, it was like a thief in the night coming mm-hmm. and stealing your joy at moments because mm-hmm. you're like, Oh God, we have this, we're going to have to do this. He's going to have to go through this. Right. But we, I thought, okay, like, I know that I'm going to use the same surgeon. I know the surgeon, I mm-hmm. trust the surgeon. Mm-hmm. We know where the hospital is. Mm-hmm. We have friends who can help like all the things, like all the things are going to be different this time. And they were much better up until I saw him. So even in the waiting room, I wasn't having scary thoughts. I was confident. I think I was like, scrolling in. I was really like, it's going to be okay. And then we were taken back into the recovery room, the little cribs that they keep the babies in, they look like cages, you know, and they mm-hmm. have these, these tarps kind of clear tarps hanging down. And it was, it was a combination of the beeping and mm-hmm. a smell, mm-hmm. a smell that like, Clearly I associated with the first surgery. I with, I don't know what kind of antiseptic it was, but like it was very, and it goes to that statement that like trauma is not a memory, it's a response. And 100%, if I could do a whole thing again, I would have gotten EMDR with my first child. Talk therapy was not enough. I needed to process like through the central nervous system and not just through the prefrontal cortex. And I didn't do that for myself. And so I just got hit by this wave of like, you know, I had to sit down. I was, I almost passed out. You know, I had to sit mm-hmm. down. They had to give me cold water. I went through the whole thing again, of not being able to hold him right away, not being able to look at the bandages right away or the blood right away. And then whatever happened within me that shifted, that happens. I was able to pick him up and help him regulate and sing to him and do all the mm-hmm. things and everything was okay. But that was my, I think that was my big takeaway. The second mm-hmm. time around was like, I know motherhood is busy and I know that there's not enough time for yourself, but I would have done anything to be able to go back and do the MDR so that I could have been more present for him or, or some other form of trauma therapy, you know, like MDR is not the only way. And since then I have... And hopefully i'll never need it hopefully i'll never be in another situation where i have to see my children vulnerable like that again but um you know i trust in the process of the mdr that if i ever do i'll be i'll be able to sort of like stay within what we talk about right like our, our window of tolerance and be present
0: so i know that since you've ha- had this experience you have started specializing in perinatal mental health and yeah. obviously you are now able to support people uh, mm-hmm. To heal from traumatic experiences, are you do you find yourself supporting um, other moms who have children who have medical complications or diagnoses?
1: I do. I've even had the honor of supporting another mom whose child has craniosynostosis, which was really a beautiful thing. And I feel like it was just the universe because I don't advertise for that. You know, it's it's a rare condition, and I try to be sensitive. I asked both of my children permission before I did this, so it's not usually something that I share, but yeah, I I work with moms who have a child who's going in for surgery or more frequently moms whose child has had surgery. I wish more moms came in before, but I totally understand why they don't and focus is so hundred percent on your child. Yeah. And it's so rewarding for me to be able to do that, to be able to work. I love working with all moms, but that's sort of like a very special, spot in my heart to be able to make space for moms who are going through that and to sit with them in that because I know how much they need it and how hard it can be to find that elsewhere just because people want to jump in and try to make you feel better when really you just need to be validated and listened to and learn some coping skills. Right, for sure.
0: So for other moms who are dealing with this specific condition, I guess, are there places where they can go or websites they can go to 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 get support, specific support or learn more?
1: Yeah, there is an organization called Cranio Bears. And this I think is a really um, neat organization for moms who are going to be going into surgery, they send you Sort of like a thought ring or a prayer ring, depending on your preference to put up in the hospital with your baby, along with like things that you're going to need that maybe you wouldn't have thought of, like chapstick, socks to keep yourself kind of um, cozy. There is, I believe it's CAPS. I'm not sure what it stands for. I'm sorry, what the acronym stands for, but I could maybe text that to you later. And, you know, you can find out about craniosynostosis there. It is fairly rare. So it's, I would say those are the two largest organizations that I know of. There's also a lot of Facebook groups. I mean, I found a lot of support for this on Facebook where they have craniosynostosis support group for parents, also for helmets. So like a lot of kids with craniosynostosis wear a helmet, either because they had an endoscopic surgery or for remodeling or safety purposes after. Oh, sure. yeah. So there are support groups for that. These CATS kids and then cranial bears, all those organizations. Oh, and FACES, F A C E S. And that would be for like not just for cranio, but you know all kinds of different craniofacial differences.
0: That's thank you for sharing that. Yeah, um, yeah, I know. Like your in terms of what you're describing your experience, like this was not something at all expected, at right? Least, you know, for your first son, and I not your second either, really. And it, it's in some ways, I think, for folks who are listening to this, especially if they're pregnant or uh, newly postpartum, it can give them something. Extra to feel anxious about or worried about. But there's also empowerment in knowing and getting information and being able to rule things in or out. So, yeah, it's of course, nobody wants something to be happening to their child. But as you were saying before, like it's nice when parents can come into therapy before the real difficult stuff hits or, uh, you know, before they're having to go through surgery recovery. Because like in your experience, there are ways to cope. There are ways for it to not feel as as intense, if I could put it that way. There's not to evaluate anyone's experience, but it's just, you know, people say things like, I don't know how I would handle X, Y, or Z if that ever happened. And in your experience, like you, nobody knows how they're going to handle it, but you do. You just
1: would. Yeah. You just would.
0: And to know that there's resources and therapists and people who can support them, I think it's more empowering than... As opposed to like, oh, it's scary to learn about difficult things. Mm-hmm. It's empowering to know that you have options. Yeah, and
1: so I appreciate you sharing your story. And- oh, thank you so much. I was honored to share. I mean, we are recording during September, which is Prionosynthesis Awareness Month. So this was like a treat for me to be able to do and hopefully bring awareness to something that we don't talk a lot about. Yeah, absolutely,
0: absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Robin, and for all of you listening who want to get connected and find out more about Robin's work, go to at Discover the Joy in Motherhood on Facebook and Instagram, or you can go to her website, robingeesonmft.com. Please share this episode far and wide. As I said before, this conversation needs to be expanded upon. We need to have these conversations out in the open and be supporting these parents in the way that they actually need. Thank you so much for being with us. Until next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with
4: us at momandmind.com. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why?